0: but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at uh, www.jacobswellgb.org. One of the cool things is that we're donating all our VBS supplies to a small town church for them to use for their own vacation Bible school. And uh, I'm going to really miss this set uh it's not often that you get to preach from margaritaville but you know gonna miss that if you would please open your bibles to nehemiah chapter three it is page 399 in the red bible uh, located in the seat in front of you page 469 in the large print, print blue bible and page 513 in the children's bible I know a lot of us are traveling for summer, and so just to catch us up to speed, uh, today we're in Nehemiah chapter 3. But in Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah is a thousand miles away from Jerusalem, and he hears that the walls of the city lie in ruins. And so after mourning and fasting and praying, he cries out to God to remember his promises to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. In Nehemiah chapter 2, Nehemiah approaches the king of Persia, the most powerful man in the world for whom he is cupbearer. And he asked the king of Persia if he can have a leave of absence to go and repair the walls of Jerusalem. And not only that, but to have letters for safe passage and for the king to donate some of his wood in order to rebuild the city. By God's grace, miraculously, the king agrees to this and sends Nehemiah away with his blessing. And not only with his blessing, but with armed guard. And so Nehemiah sets out to go to the region beyond the river in Canaan to rebuild the walls of the city. And he meets opposition right away. In Nehemiah 2, verse 17, we read, Then Nehemiah said to the Jews, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. This he said after assessing the gates. He said, Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God, that have been upon me for good, and also of the word that the king spoke to me, and they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Today's passage is the explanation of their faith taking action. It is them gathering together for the building of the wall of the city of God. Now, today's passage is a bit hard to follow because there are a lot of people's names, a lot of walls' names, a lot of gate names in it. And so to help you in reading through this passage, I have printed out a map that is in your bulletin or an illustration of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And I just want to give you a couple details on this as I read through the passage. First off, uh, you will see that that Mark Berry says, please do not republish without permission. Just to ease your conscience, I did get permission from Mark Berry. So you can enjoy the map without guilt. Um, Also note that this layout is basically a guesstimation. They don't know where all of these gates were in the city or where all of the walls were. Some of them they're more sure of than others, but I think this map is very helpful. The other thing I want to point out to you here is if you look below these red uh, labels, you'll see there are passages. And it walks through Nehemiah chapter 3. And you'll see it starts here in the sheep's gate, and then it goes counterclockwise all along the wall, all the way back to the sheep's gate. Okay. And as I read the passage to you today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something to kind of indicate when something's on the map. So when I get to verse 13, I will say out loud, verse 13. And when you hear that, you'll go, oh, this is a point on the map. Or I'll say verse 15, you'll know this is a point on the map, okay? So we're going to read through Nehemiah chapter 3. Pray for me. A lot of these names are uh, not a part of our common society today, and so I will do my best work. As I've said before, if I said it wrong, neither of us will know anyway, so I'll just plow through them. Um, Let's back up to to chapter 2, verse 19, because I think context is so important in in reading this. So let's start Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it that the Jews were going to rebuild the wall, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, and these are some of my favorite words in Nehemiah, a great picture of life itself. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hanel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zikur, the son of Emri built. Verse 3. The sons of Hasena built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakkaz repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, Son of Meshezebel repaired, and next to him, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired, and next to them the Tekoites repaired, and their noble, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Verse six: Joadiah, the son of Pesha, and Meshulam, the son of Besodiah, repaired the gate of Yeshana. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maronite, the men of Gibeon and of Mitzbah, the seat of the governor of the power beyond the province beyond the river. Verse 8, next to them Uziel, the son of Hariah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired and they restored Jerusalem as far as, as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Hermaph, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Heshanabaniah, repaired. Verse 11. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hasahab, the son of Pathah Moab, repaired. Another section of the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halasha, ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Verse 13, Hanun, the inhabitant of Zenoa, repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth-hacharim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Verse 15. And Shalom, the son of kol Hose, ruler of the district of Mitzvah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalah, of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, one different than who wrote this, the son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pools and as far as the house of the mighty men. After him, the Levites repaired, Rahum, the son of Benai. Next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half-district of Kalah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired, Bavai, the son of Henadad. Ruler of the half district of Kaliah. Verse 19. Next to him, Ezra, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mitzvah, repaired another section opposite the accent of the armory of, at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Heshub repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Bunuai, the son of Henadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Verse twenty-five. Pahal, the son of Uziah, repaired opposite the buttress and tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Perash. Verse twenty-six. And the temple servants living on Ophel repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. Verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. Verse 28. Nine. After them, Zadok, the son of Amur, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shekinah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shemaliah, and Hana, the sixth son of Zeleph, repaired another section. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. Verse 31. After him, Melchizedek, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the muster gate and to the upper chamber of the corner. Verse 32, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy inspired, inerrant word, given for our good, let us receive it as such. In Jesus' name, amen. Why is Nehemiah chapter 3 in the Bible? That may have been a question floating in your head as we read through it. One of the most famous commentaries on the book of Nehemiah called Hand Me Another Brook by Chuck Swindoll actually skips Nehemiah chapter 3, presumably because it has all of these strange names and it's like, what is the point? Now I don't say that in judgment of Chuck Swindoll because as I first read through Nehemiah chapter 3, I kind of just glanced through, I I looked to see where the names kind of ended and started reading again. Even as I thought about this passage, someone's like, hey, I'm going to come visit church on that Sunday that you're preaching. And they didn't know I'm preaching Nehemiah chapter 3. I'm like, I'm thinking in my heart, why don't you just wait a Sunday? Like, Nehemiah chapter 3, that's a really hard chapter. But as I was reminded of this week, again, is that this is God's word. And all scripture is breathed out by God. Even Nehemiah chapter 3. And It is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so the problem with Nehemiah chapter 3 is not Nehemiah chapter 3. It is our own hearts, our own dim minds who don't understand the glory of God's word. And so I want to look at Nehemiah chapter 3 today and, and see the treasures that are found here. And I want to do this with what has been called the five W's and the one H. Do you know the five W's the one H? Who, what, where, when, why, how? And so that's what we're going to look at here at Nehemiah chapter three. I first want to address three of the W's very quickly. The first is the what. Obviously, the what here is that uh, the Israelites are rebuilding the wall, okay? The where. The where is Jerusalem. Simple. And the when. The when is 44, excuse me, 445 BC. So that's the That's the what, where, and when, okay? Rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem, 445 BC. But I want to dig deeper into the rest of those, the why, the who, and the how. So let's start with the why. Why were they so passionate about rebuilding the wall? You know, we live in a country that talks a lot about building walls, don't we? Um, It's political platforms. It's even argued who's going to pay for that wall, right? That is not why we picked the book of Nehemiah. Okay, we did not pick it to promote a political platform by any stretch of the imagination. The reason we picked the book of Nehemiah is because we knew that this would be a rebuilding stage in the church at Jacob's Well. This was the very first book that we would be preaching after we sent away many of our friends, many of our members to go and plant another church on the east side of Green Bay. And there were many vacancies that would be opened up. We had very gifted musicians that we sent with the church plant. We had a counselor that we sent with the church plant. We had the leader of our, of our, uh, of our um, Easter icon and the leader of our Operation Christmas Child. And we had children's church service and we had soundboard people all go with that church plant. And we knew there would be a vacuum, a need for us to rebuild here at Jacob's Well Church. And so that's why we picked Nehemiah. But what about the Jews? Why Why did the Jews think rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem was so extremely important? Last week, I pointed out to you that a city without walls is like a house without doors. It is very dangerous. It is unpeaceful, and it is even shameful. But that is just the tip of the iceberg of the why. And so I want to go below the surface of the water and see the massive reason lying below the water as to why rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem were so important to the people of Israel. And to do this, I want to, I want to quickly walk you through the redemptive history of Israel. Quickly, okay? that's the I'll try. So just to warn you... Um, I'm going to turn on the fire hydrant and stick your lips up to it and just pour it in, all right? And then you can try to uh, figure it all out later. But if you look at the backside of your uh, insert, um, if, if you're new here, we never have inserts for this sermon. This is, this is a special Sunday. No extra charge. Uh, this is yours. But let me quickly walk through the redemptive history of Israel. So in 2100 BC, God appears to Abraham and makes him promises. And those promises I all have starting with the letter P, okay? These are three important promises that if you can remember these, is very helpful in reading the entire Old Testament. It's a framework for reading the Old Testament. So God promises his presence that he would be with Abraham and with his descendants forever. God promises a people That elderly Abraham and Barah Sarah, his wife, would have children, and their children would have children, and they would grow into a great nation. And the third promise is property, that God would provide a land for them, a promised land, where his blessings would flow. Well, Abraham did miraculously have children with his wife Sarah, and through his descendants, it led to the 12 tribes, which were taken down to Egypt to be provided for and the best of Egypt during a famine across the land. While they were there for 400 years, they were put into bondage and into slavery. And so the people of God cried out to the Lord. And the Lord heard their cry and delivered them from Egypt. And so in 1446, there is the exodus from Egypt in which God conquers the most, again, most powerful man in the world through the 10 plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea, to deliver his people out of slavery and take them to the promised land. And so God brings them to the promised land. He brings them to the edge of the promised land to look into the promised land and says, go and conquer and take. I will give all of these people into your hands. But they say, no, they're too big for us. We're like grasshoppers in their sight. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years and the generation dies off. But the two men that believe, Joshua and Caleb, return to bring the people of God into the promised land in Canaan. And they conquer much of the territory. In 1050 BC, Israel becomes a nation. This happens in that promised land of Canaan. They have their first king of Israel. His name is Saul. He is replaced by King David, a man after God's own heart. And then King Solomon comes, David's son, and really destroys the kingdom. And so in 930 BC, Israel is split into a northern kingdom, which is called Israel. That's what makes this confusing. And a southern kingdom, which is called Judah. If you think of it this way, it's kind of like the civil war in our own country, where there was a north and a south. Both Israel and Judah get progressively worse. Their kings chase after false idols, Especially in the northern kingdom, where they go from bad to worse, to worser, to worsest. And so in 800 BC, God starts sending prophets to Israel to warn them, saying, repent and return to me, or else I will bring judgment upon you through the nations of the world, and you will be dispersed throughout the world. But if you repent and return to me, I will provide for you. They did not rep- repent and return. And so in 722 BC, The northern kingdom, Israel, is conquered by the Assyrians as an act of God's refining discipline. It was common practice in that time when when you conquered a territory that you would take the people and disperse them throughout the empire to weaken them. And that's what they did. Well, Judah did a little bit better, the southern kingdom. It had some good kings and some not so good kings, some kings that trusted in the Lord, some that rebelled against the Lord and chased after other gods, but it finally went from bad to worse. And in 586 BC, the southern kingdom, Judah, is conquered by the Babylonians as an act of God's refining discipline. And so here we are, and the three Ps are in jeopardy, okay? The presence of God. Ezekiel 10 tells us that God's glory departs from the temple, The people, they're no longer gathered together as a nation. They're dispersed throughout the world and the property. They no longer possess the promised land of Canaan. And so when we get to Nehemiah 1.5, Nehemiah cries out to God to remember his covenant as Nehemiah is dispersed throughout the empire. He says, Lord, remember, remember your promises. Remember your covenant to Abraham and to his people God, you said that if we rebelled against you, that you would disperse us throughout the world. And you have done that. But God, we are returning to you. And as we return to you, return us to the promised land. And that's what God did. You see, God loves his people so much that he would do anything to win their hearts back to himself. Even if it meant their exile across the face of the earth and that's exactly what God did. God will put his people through hard times in order to recapture their hearts. God loves his people. He is jealous for them. He brought destruction upon them, judgment in order to win them back to himself. And then in 539 we reach, we reach a major turning point. The Assyrian empire conquers Israel the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonian Empire conquers the southern kingdom, Judah. And then the Persians come along and conquer that kingdom, and they are all under the Persians. I appreciate that they did it in alphabetical order. Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, it made seminary easier. But that's how it went, okay? Alphabetical order, at least in English. So so in 539 B.C., King Cyrus, the Persian Empire, overtakes the Babylonian Empire. And then we get to 538 B.C., and Cyrus issues a decree that the Jewish exiles can return home. And so the Jewish exiles start to return to Jerusalem. 516 B.C., the temple in Jerusalem is completed. 458 B.C., Ezra returns to Jerusalem to reestablish Mosaic law. And then 445 B.C., Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. Now, why is this all so important? Why is this the, 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 the part of the iceberg below the water that gives reason to why they're rebuilding this wall? Well, you see, they were a people that were scattered and they longed to be a people gathered together again. They were people without a property that longed for the promised land and they longed for the presence of God to return to his holy city. You see, the Jews rebuilt the wall the rebuilding of the wall was not really about the wall. It was a means to an end. The rebuilding of the wall was to restore the people of God in right relationship with God so that the presence of God and the glory of God might be manifested among them. And so let me put it this way. The people rebuilt the wall not so they could have a wall, but they, so they could have more of God. You know, my sons, uh, my older two sons have... Adopted a love for fishing, uh, especially my oldest son Corbin. He even had a fishing birthday party. And if you would have asked me a year ago, I would have told you I hate fishing. Um, I hate fishing because I catch as much fish in my backyard as I do out on a lake. That's why I hate fishing. So I'm not a big fisherman. But you know what? We bought a cheap boat and a trolling motor, and now I love to go fishing. Do you know why I love to go fishing? Not because I love to go fishing, but because I love to be with my kids. See, that, that, that's the point of the boat, is to, is to be with my kids. Or let me put it this way. When Trish and I were dating, I lived 500 miles away. And cell phones were, were brand new at that time. And long distance was a reality for some people, for me. And so a, a cheap way to get long distance calling was to buy a cell phone. So I bought a cell phone in order that I could talk to Trisha on the phone at night. See, I bought the cell phone not because I wanted the cell phone, but because I wanted to commune with Trisha. I wanted to talk with her. In the same way, the Jews were not rebuilding the wall so that they could have a wall, but so that they could have more of the goodness and pleasure and presence of God as he had promised to Abraham many years ago. Now, how does this apply to us today? Well, in the New Testament, the people of God, the church are not told to stay into Jerusalem, but to go from Jerusalem to the uttermost ends of the earth to fill the whole earth with the glory of God. Now, how do we fill the earth with the special presence of God's glory that only dwelt in the temple, which is now destroyed? When Acts 17, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. So where does God live? Where is his special presence? He tells us in 2 Corinthians 6 that for we, the church, you and me, we are the temple of the living God who said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Friends, this is unbelievable that the God who dwelt in the holy of holies that could only be approached once a year by the great high priest now dwells in you and in me to the holy spirit. And so how does this apply to us? Well, let's think of it this way. Why why do we have a vacation Bible school? Why do we have a building? Why do we have small groups? It's not so we can have EBS. It's not so that we can have a building. It's not so we can have small groups. We do all these things for another purpose, a greater purpose. We want more of the glory of the presence of our gracious, loving, redeeming God to flood the world through the hearts of men and women and children, including our own. And that's why we do all things. And so why did they build the wall because they wanted to extend the glory and enjoyment of God throughout the world and even in their own hearts. Now, who rebuilt the wall? In this passage, there's 41 different point people mentioned, builders from different occupations, different families, different hometowns, and I think it's important for us to see the diversity in here. First, Nehemiah mentions the priests. These are the religious leaders. They did not see this as a mundane task. They saw this as building the kingdom of God. Second, Nehemiah mentions the men of Jericho. These men of Jericho lived a good ways off as well as many other folks that were from Tekoa, from Gibeon, from Mitzpah, and other areas. Nehemiah also mentions politicians, city officials that got their hands dirty, that rolled up their sleeves to help rebuild the wall. I don't know if you saw this video. It's kind of gone viral, but the Dutch prime minister was walking into this office building and he spilled his cup of coffee. And so he asked for a mop and someone gave him a mop and there he is in a suit and tie mopping up the floor and the cleaning ladies come up and they start singing and chanting to him and celebrating that a politician is getting his hands he dirty. He's doing these things. This is, this is a glorious thing when these bigwigs get involved in these types of matters. We also see Nehemiah mentions certain trades, goldsmiths. These are jewelers and perfumers. I mean, what does a jeweler and a perfumer know about rebuilding a wall? What do they know about construction? Not much, I'm guessing. You know, we, we, so want, we so badly want to know and to discover with you what your spiritual gifts are and where we can place you to serve according to those spiritual gifts. But sometimes we just need you to build a wall. Sometimes we just, we just need to come together no matter what our gifts are to build for the kingdom of God. I mean, vacation in Bible school was such a great picture of this. We had 11-year-olds, we had and we had senior citizens. We had homeschoolers, public schoolers, private schoolers. We had rich people. We had poor people. We had all sorts of people from Well Church coming together to put on this vacation Bible school for the glory of God, to minister to the children of our church and of this community. You know, Nehemiah goes on, and he also mentions another group of people. Not because of what they did, but because of what they didn't do. Verse 5, he says, Next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. The Tekoite people served faithfully. They built, rebuilt part of this wall. In verse 27, it says they were done, so they decided to build another part of the wall. But the Tekoite nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. This is to their disgrace. I'm sure they had good reasons like, hey, I'm busy guy. You know, I'm white collar. This isn't really my gift mix. But see how Nehemiah and the word of God understands their excuses. They said they would not stoop to serve the Lord. You know, if you call Jacob's Well, your church home, my hope is that you would stoop to serve the Lord here, that you would not be above serving in mundane ways throughout this building, throughout this community. God is calling us to stoop, to serve the Lord wherever he calls us to be. Coach Bud Wilkinson, an Oklahoma football coach, once described a football game this way. I love it. He says, thousands of spectators sit in the stands in desperate need of exercise, while 22 men are on the field in desperate need of rest. Church communities can often operate this way. You maybe have heard of the 80-20 rule that 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people. Well, this was not the case for Nehemiah. And I'm thankful to say it's not the case here at Jacobswell Church either. We have such great people that serve here at Jacobswell Church. VBS, again, was such a great example of this. At one point, Katie actually came up to me. She's like, I'm so amazed. I know, I, I knew we had a great church, but it's amazing to see how people stepped up to serve and to, to give to make this Vacation Bible School happen. I talked to other children's ministry directors and they're struggling to find people to serve in VBS. And so, church, I am so thankful for your service at Jacob's Well. And if you are like the nobles who will not stoop to serve the Lord, I encourage you to change that to sign up to serve in a way that you can. One more people, one more thing I want to point out here is that not only did you have all these people from different trades and different parts of the country sign up to help serve, but you also had daughters serving. In verse 12, it says, Shalom, the ruler of the half district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Not only did daughters serve, but also sons served as well. As a matter of fact, in these 32 verses, the word son is mentioned 34 times. So more than there's even verses here in this passage. And I think as as we think about Father's Day today, this is very instructive to us dads. That we are not only called to go and to be part of building the kingdom of God, but that we are called to bring our children with us. To engage them in ministry. To help them see that we are called to be a people, a light to the world. You know, we live in a, in, a, in a world where it's so easy just to give our children an iPad or to flip on a TV and, and just medicate them and, and parent them that way, and certainly there are times to enjoy those things. But we are actually called to greatness, and our kids are as well, to take them into the nursing home with us, to take them for hospital visits with us, to take them to go and take a meal to a family in need with us, to show them what it looks like to be the hands and feet of Jesus to this world. And so as we look at this passage and we think about who rebuilt the wall, it was a diverse group of people. It was every member ministry together. Finally, how did they rebuild the wall? And I'm going to go very quickly through this because I want to save time for the conclusion. Fifteen times in this passage, it uses the word next to him. Or next to them. first 4 alone. You see, and next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekeziah, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berekiah, son of Mesbulah, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired. Everyone had their own individual project that they did with a small group. But they were working together to build something greater. Something bigger than themselves. Something bigger than they could do even by themselves. Henry Ford said, coming together is a beginning. Keeping together is progress. Working together is success. When we read Nehemiah 3, we may wonder, what does this have to do with me? And you see, even in that question, there is a problem because we assume everything has to be about me. But this is about the kingdom of God. This is about us building together for the glory of God. To quote another theological masterpiece, a Lego movie, they say this. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome when you're living out a dream. Everything is better when we stick together. And then there's this piece, which I never realized was in the song. It says this. Some have said said, you and I are going to win forever. This is our story, friends. We are partnering together as a team to build the kingdom of God, which we know will be victorious for all eternity. And so just to recap, why did they rebuild the wall? To extend the glory of God in their city, in their world, and in their own hearts. Who rebuilt the wall? A diversity of people. How did they rebuild the wall? In unity together as a team. Now again, let me ask, what is the point of Nehemiah 3 in the Bible? The walls Nehemiah built are now destroyed and lay in ruins. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD, just as Jesus said it would. And so what is the point of Nehemiah chapter 3, or Nehemiah, the book as a whole? See, the rebuilding of that Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day points us to the building of another Jerusalem whose walls will never crumble. You know, I'm the youngest of five kids, and one of my sisters who loves the Lord, loves Jesus has just gone through horrific situations in her life. She's not perfect, but her faith in God is an encouragement to me and to many, many others. Anyways, recently one of her children has been going through some very difficult times, had some very dark thoughts. To be honest with you, it's only by the grace of God that that this teenage child is still alive and that they haven't hurt someone else. They've been in and out of doctor's offices and counselors for many years trying to figure out what's going on with this child. This past week, she texted me and she said, hey, I'll take a prayer right now, headed to meeting at hospital to try and get her child transferred to a residential program. Haven't seen him or talked since Sunday. Later, she said this, and usually she, keep, she doesn't share this stuff, but she said, I really cracked yesterday. My heart is so shattered, and I am begging the Lord for hope and wisdom. By the way, she gave me permission to share this. So. This past Wednesday, she sent another text She said the meeting went awful, that her child is very upset about going to residential program and just wants to come home. You know, how do you respond to someone who is hurting so deeply, someone you love so much? How do you give hope to them? Do you say, I'm sure it's all going to be okay? Because we aren't sure in this life that it is going to be okay. We're not sure that he's going to get better. We're not sure. So what hope do we have to offer? Well, I sent her a link to a song that we're going to sing in a few minutes. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's a newer song. But it says, this world is not what it was meant to be. All the pain, all the suffering. There's a better place waiting for me in heaven. Every tear will be wiped away. Every sorrow and sin erased. I'm going home. See, the great hope of this city of Jerusalem being rebuilt, is that there is a greater Jerusalem yet to come. You see, Christians, our ultimate hope is not in that Jerusalem, but the Jerusalem that God is going to build. Hebrews 11.10 says, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, who designer and builder is God. Just like the Jews of the Old Testament, because of our sin, because of our rebellion, because of our idolatry, we have been cast away from a holy God, and God has sent a greater Nehemiah, Jesus Christ, to come and to win the day, not simply to rebuild the walls of the city, but to rebuild the very people of God. Jesus took on our sin, took on our rebellion, paid for it in full upon the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven to go and to prepare a home for you and for me and for all who trust in Jesus Christ. To build a city whose walls are not made of stone and wood, but of jasper and sapphire and emeralds, a wall that will never be destroyed ever again, to bring forth a city, a new Jerusalem, where there will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. At the end of Revelations 21, it says this, talking about the new city of Jerusalem. It says, but nothing unclean will enter it, Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Friends, that is trouble for you and for me if we do not trust in Christ, who is our righteousness. But then it says this but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Christian, your name will never be recorded in Nehemiah chapter 3. But I have better news. Your name is recorded in the book of life, which gives you entrance into the glorious new Jerusalem, which is your home for all eternity. Why is Nehemiah 3 in the Bible? To remind us that God is faithful to his promises, that God has established a people for himself called the church, that God is building a property for his people, the new Jerusalem, and that God is present with his people in our hearts through the Holy Spirit today and in heaven with us for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for Nehemiah chapter 3. A reminder, God, that you do not give up on your people, but that you work in and through your people to accomplish your promises. May the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem in that day give us hope in the Jerusalem that is yet to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.